discussed last week about the progress uh, that Nehemiah and those in Jerusalem were making on the wall and how that any time that the Lord's work is going forth and progress is being made, it's, uh, it can be expected that you're going to face opposition. And that applies to any church as well. Any church, any congregation of God's people who are seeking God's glory uh, and want to make progress to that end will face opposition. We have an enemy. And this enemy isn't just some force out in the world. It's not just a spirit of wickedness in the, uh, in the universe. But the Bible describes this Satan, this devil, as we call him, uh, as a person. He hates the church. He hates God. And Peter describes him as a lion who walks about seeking whom he may devour. And he hates churches who want to bring glory to his enemy. And that is God. He would love for us to simply be complacent and to be happy to just coast along and, and just things go as they've always gone and to be comfortable sitting on our pews and everything just running smoothly. But if he cannot keep us standing still, he will seek to destroy us. Last week, we saw how progress on the wall of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day was met with opposition from people outside of their country, outside of the city. We saw opposition that first came in mockery and criticism. It was all verbal. But it wasn't much time at all that once they showed that they wouldn't be deterred and they'd continue on with the work, that they began to threaten them physically to come and attack. So when faced with opposition from the outside, they rallied to each other's aid. They, they pressed on in the work. And since threats from the outside of God's people didn't bring a stop to the work, they began to face opposition from where? From within. See, Satan's tactics haven't really changed as he seeks to either disable or destroy the church. If he can't bring you or us, I should say, down with external threats, with criticism and mockery and, and whatever else comes against us from the outside, he will not hesitate to bring us down with internal conflict. And he's proven time and again in churches all over the place that he's good at it. He's very effective at bringing churches down by stirring internal conflict. Now, look what hap what's happening here in Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. It says, And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their, what? Their enemies? Uh, the Samaritans? Sanballat? Tobiah? Geshem? No, the, the great outcry of the people and their wives was against their, their Jewish brethren, their own people. Here's some of the problems they're facing. Verse 2, For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. A famine has moved into the land. Food is short. There's more people than there's food to feed them, and they're hungry. Verse 3 says, There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. So things have gotten bad enough that they're, they're dipping into their savings, if you will. They're having to, to take out loans in order just to eat, to survive. That's not a, a 
totally unheard of thing. Even in today, there are people I've talked to just in the last few weeks who have talked about that the, the economic situation in the, in the country at the moment has, has been painful. It's been tight on a lot of households and savings accounts are being diminished as people aren't able to, to, to meet a lot of their basic needs on their income. And that's, that's what's happening here. They're having to take out loans just so they can, that they can eat. And verse 4 says, there were also those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and the vineyards. So we're hungry. We're taking out loans so we can buy food. And now they're having to take out loans just so they can pay their taxes. Borrow money from one another. But here's where it's, it's really bad is verse 5. This is the big problem. It says, yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So the problem has gotten so bad that they not only can't afford to buy their basic needs, but they're having to take out loans and then people come to collect on the loans and they're having to literally sell themselves and their children into slavery just to survive. And this would be a big enough problem if it was happening because of the nations around them. But the outcry isn't against the nations around them. It's against their own people, their own Jewish brethren. So this is some pretty serious internal conflict that's happening in Jerusalem at a very crucial time when this wall needs to be built. They need the protection of the wall. They need to be unified. They were unified. They were building together. They were coming to each other's aid. They were standing in the gaps. And then now, every man for himself. Now, context and circumstances change uh, with time, but the root of the problem is always the same when it comes to internal conflict. Whether it's in Jerusalem in that day or in the church in the 21st century, the root of the problem really comes down to this, and it's selfishness or self-centeredness. It's worship of the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I. That's who we love, that's who we serve, and that's who we worship. It's a greater concern over my needs, my desires, my preferences, over the needs of others or over what God desires. And that's always the bottom line when it comes to internal conflict. It's just self-centeredness. It's selfishness. And so how do we deal with internal conflict when it comes? Because, just, just face it, it, it will come. How do you deal with it? And I just want to show you briefly three things that, that Nehemiah does here in this passage to deal with the conflict in his day. And the first is simply this, confront sin. Confront sin. Look there at verse 7. Or six, he says, I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury, that is, charging interest from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them, and I said, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who are sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Now, a couple of things I want to note about what Nehemiah does here. It, it begins with after serious thought. 
Okay, when we see sin, when we see internal conflict begin to arise, we see selfishness, self-centeredness, and we need to confront sin, it's easy to react uh, irrationally, emotionally, in a fit of anger, and end up in just as bad a condition or worse than the people we've gone to confront, right? So we don't need to do that. He knows he needs to act, but he didn't act irrationally or react irrationally. He, he does rebuke them, though. He follows through with the confrontation. Here's what we know of, of Nehemiah. He's a praying man. Back in chapter 1, he prayed for four months with fasting over the condition of Jerusalem. When he came to the king and the king says, well, what do you, what do you want? What do you need? What does he say? He says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. In chapter 4, we saw it last week when they're facing opposition from the people outside of them and they're being mocked. He didn't, he didn't react. He didn't uh, retaliate against his enemies. What did they do? They prayed. And so I have no doubt here that in this uh, serious thought that, that Nehemiah has, this consideration internally, there's some prayer going on. But even after that, he followed through with the confrontation. Now, how does that apply today? I think Matthew 7 is a, a good a good place to start with this. Everybody knows verse 1, right? Judge not that you be not judged. Everybody know that one? Who can tell me what comes after it? Okay, a few maybe. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Got it? So the command isn't that there's never an occasion to confront sin, but it's that with whatever standard you use to judge others, you will be judged by that same standard. So he says this. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank that's in your own eye? He says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we do have to confront sin. Jesus commands us to. But before we go out to confront the sin of others, before you go after the speck that's in your brother's eye, make sure there's not a plank in your own. So you go to the Lord in prayer. You say, God, is there any sin in my life? I see this that needs to be dealt with, and, I, and it has to be confronted. But before I do that, is there anything in me that I need to confess? And you deal with the sin in your own life. You make sure your life is clean before God. And he says, and then you can see clearly to deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye. Matthew 18, Jesus gives us some very specific commands about how to deal with sin in the church. He says there in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Okay, don't involve everybody. Don't talk to everybody. If you see a fault, you go talk to him. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So you go, you say, listen, I see this sin. They won't listen. Okay, you get a couple of people to go with you. You confront them. If they still won't hear you, he says, if he refuses to hear them, then you bring it before the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So there's stages to this. There's steps. Jesus didn't leave anything for us to figure out on this. He told us how to do it. To not confront sin the way God has prescribed for us to do it is in itself sin. 
And we do this for the sake of God's name. There in Nehemiah again in verse 9, he says, Then I said, What you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah says, why are you sinning like this? You've got your brethren that have been redeemed out of bondage. They've been brought back to their land, and now you're selling them right back into slavery. And the issue that he comes down is this, on is this. What are the nations going to think about our God if this is how his people treat each other? And in the church, we have to deal with sin. We have to confront sin, not just for the sake of, of, of making sure everybody's life is right, but because we want people to look at us and say they have a good God. They have a holy God, a righteous God. So that they don't look at us and say, if that's the way those people are, if their God's okay with that kind of behavior, I want nothing to do with that kind of God. It's all about God's name. Jesus told us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want God's name to be made holy. We want people to see and know God for who he is, so we have to confront sin when it arises. The second thing is we call for repentance unto righteousness. We call for repentance unto righteousness. You see, it's kind of useless to confront sin and, and not call for a change. It's useless to say, that's a sin, you shouldn't be doing that, and not have some expectation that there's going to be repentance and that righteousness will follow. Look there in verse 10 in Nehemiah chapter 5. He says, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury, this interest. He says, I'm lending people money too. Stop charging your brother's interest. Now, is there anything inherently wrong with charging interest on a loan? No. But God had commanded his people in Israel not to do it to one another. And there's a care and a concern that's supposed to be among God's people that we don't take advantage of each other. He says here, restore now to them, even this day. Do it today. Don't wait. Restore their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine, and the oil which you've charged them. And so they said, we will restore it and will require this thing from them. We will do as you say. That's every preacher's dream right there, to call it out once. And they say, yeah, we can do that. We'll do exactly what you tell us to do. Hey, stop sinning. Go honor the Lord. Okay. They did. They repented. They changed right there in that moment. They were self-centered, concerned about their own gain, regardless of what it cost their own people. So the change that is needed is what? It's love and care for those in need in the community of God's people. So if the root of the problem when it comes to internal conflict in the church is self-centeredness, self-centeredness, then repentance under righteousness would produce love for others. If the issue is self, then repentance means we focus on others. Jesus commands Christians to serve one another. Remember, he washed his disciples' feet. He took on that role of a servant. Him, their, their rabbi, their teacher, took off his outer robe, wrapped himself in a towel, got down on his hands and knees and washed their filthy feet. And he said this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I'm willing to humble myself, your Lord, your teacher, not to mention your creator, to wash your feet, you can wash each other's feet. You can serve one another. 
In fact, it's by our love for one another that the world will be able to identify us as followers of Jesus. He said in that same chapter, he said, A commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can I turn up the heat just a little bit more? That's a bad thing to say right now. It's kind of hot in here. And <laughs> turn up the heat just a little bit more. Love for one another is evidence of your salvation. And by implication, if you don't have love for one another, it might be evidence that you're not a Christian. 1 John 3 says, we know that we have passed from death to life, that we've been born again because we love the brethren. That is our Christian brothers and sisters. He who does not love his brother abides in death. He goes on in the next chapter. He said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother. This is harsh, but listen, he said, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? See, love for one another, love for your Christian brothers and sisters isn't a small issue. It's so serious that if you don't have love for the people in this room right now, your salvation can be called into question of whether it's real. Because we're all bound together by the same Spirit. God has put the Spirit of Jesus into each person who has believed in His name. Every person who's been born again. And we are all of one family. We've experienced the love of God. How could we not in turn share that same love with the other people who have experienced it? I'm not even talking about the world at this point. I'm talking about the people in this room. So we confront sin, we call to repentance and righteousness, and then the third thing is commit to being an example. Commit to being an example. I look at Nehemiah there in verse 14, he says, Moreover, from that time I was appointed to be their governor. And he goes on about that. And he says, Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. But the former governors who were before me laid their burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yet even, yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. So Nehemiah has been made the governor of the people at this point. He has rights to have a certain allotment of food and wine and to take taxes from the people and to, to, to have this from them, but he chooses not to do it. Not because it would have necessarily been wrong to, to live in the privileges of his position or to enjoy the blessings that God had given him, but because he cared more about the people whom he governed than about his own abundance. He says, indeed, verse 16, I also continued to work on the wall. I mean, the governor didn't just you know, sit in the mansion and eat the food and expect the people to do the work. But he says, no, I'm not going to take this from you because you need it. And by the way, I'm going to get out here and work alongside you to make sure it gets done. That's an example. He says, we didn't buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. So not only is he not uh, taking from the people all that would be due him, but he's actually inviting other people to come and eat at his table with what he does have. So he's not pointing the finger and saying, you guys are being mean to each other. You got to stop it. You got to love each other. Be kind. I'm here to collect my taxes and my food, by the way. 
But no, he doesn't take that, and he invites others to eat at the table with what he does have. And he works alongside the people. Friends, this, this is simple stuff for us, right? There's easy commands in the New Testament for this. Paul told Timothy, he said, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. He told Titus, he says, Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that the one who is an op opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. If you want to deal with internal conflict in the church, yes, we have to confront sin. Yes, we have to call out for repentance and righteousness. But we also have to commit to ourselves being an example to other believers around us and doing what's right even when other people aren't. Who's our ultimate example of this? Selflessness, love for one another. It's Jesus. Absolutely. Jesus said in John 15, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus says there's nothing greater than that. There's no greater way you can show your love for one another than to lay down your own life for each other. And what did he do? He laid down his life for his friends. That's the simple message of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. That we who have sinned against him have offended him because of our trespasses, our, our, our breaking of his law. We deserve from Him wrath, punishment, justice, hell. But God so loved the world, right? Some of us read this this morning. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 5 says God demonstrated His own love toward us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, you've offended God. Yes, you deserve wrath. Yes, hell is your destination if you are lost in your sins. But Jesus has died for you. He took your sins on Himself on the cross. All of the justice and the punishment and the wrath that you deserve was poured out on Him in His death. He bore the weight of it all. Every second of hell that it would have taken you an eternity to experience, He experienced in those three hours on the cross. And taking that punishment on Himself, though you deserve to die for your sin, He died. He drew His last breath and He said, It is finished. And He died. And then... On the third day, proving that he was who he said he was, that he'd accomplished everything that he said he would do, he rose from the dead. He lives today. He has the power to forgive your sins. He has the power to give life. And he does it because he loves sinners. That's our perfect example. What did Paul say? Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. 
If you have experienced that kind of love by repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus, you've been saved, you've been born again. Friend, how can you not turn and love one another that way? Here's the main idea. We'll wrap this up. Internal conflict is resolved when our focus is changed from inward to upward and outward. Just just sink, sit on that for a second, okay? In, internal conflict of any kind is resolved when our focus is changed from inward to upward and outward. Here's what I mean. We take our eyes off of ourselves, what's in it for us, our own needs, our own preferences, our own desires, and we look up to the one who died for us, who has showed us unconditional love to that degree that he would lay down his own life, and then we look at the people around us and express that same love and be concerned about their needs, their desires. We show God's love to His own people here in this congregation and then beyond that, reaching out to the lost. Listen, it's hard to really focus on internal conflict when our focus is on loving each other and reaching the world outside. And we're not fighting over the carpet color or anything like, but that's the, that's the Baptist example, right? So it's hard to fight over stuff like you know carpet color or lighting in the room or what kind of songs we sing if our main focus is on loving and serving in each other and reaching the community around us. That's the emphasis. So internal conflict is resolved when our focus is changed from inward to upward and outward. And that's what God calls us to as His people. And so if if, if you hear this and, and the Holy Spirit deals with your heart and you think, you know what, I have been a little too self-centered. I have been a little too focused on my own desires, my own preferences. We're going to take a, a minute to pray here and you just go ahead and confess that to God and get it right. Ask Him to help you turn your focus to Him first and then to others around you and to think less of yourself and to show the love that we've received. And if you're in the point where you've never really experienced this and you hear this message that Jesus died for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he offers forgiveness and life for those who believe in him, and that's new to you, or it's sort of hit you afresh, repent, turn away from your sins, put your trust in Jesus and experience that love. It's not just something to know about, it's something to be experienced. As you become a child of God. So I'm going to take a moment here to pray. And as I pray, you pray. And we'll stand and sing a hymn together. And then we'll do some baptizing. Father, this is your word. And you've spoken. Lord, I pray that we would think less of ourselves not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. That our mind would be like the mind of Christ, who humbled himself and gave his own life for sinners. May we give our lives for one another and to reach the lost in the community around us. And Lord, if someone here has not yet believed the gospel and been saved, I pray that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.